Welcome everyone to this evening's event, the launch of Dr. Damien Tambini's book, Media Freedom. I'm Dr. Lee Edwards. I'm a professor of strategic communications and public engagement here in the Department of Media, Media and Communications at the LSE. And I'm gonna chair the event this evening. The topic of media freedom, freedom, of course, is an urgent one in a world where media freedom is increasingly constrained and journalists are endangered, often to the extent that their lives are at risk in many locations. And in a world, of course, where digital technologies and platforms are challenging old models of media content and distribution, but also dilute content, cannibalize audiences and exacerbate misinformation and disinformation. The political will to deal with these changes to media um, and challenges indeed to media has seemed at best ambivalent. And Dr. Sambini's book presents a passionate argument for addressing them systematically through a coherent rights-based approach that can be translated into effective policy. And that argument is what we'll be discussing today. First, Dr. Zambini will discuss the main arguments in his book for around 10 or 15 minutes. And following that, our panel will discuss his ideas and Damien will respond before we move to the Q&A. And I'm delighted to introduce our panellists, all of whom have an outstanding reputation in the world of media and media law. First of all, Jean Seaton is Professor of Media History at the University of Westminster and the official historian of the BBC. Her forensic histories of the BBC have given her a deep understanding of what is perhaps the UK's most iconic media organisation. And she can regularly contributes to policy discussions within the corporation, as well as to discussions about its future. In 2019, her book, Power Without Responsibility, Press, Broadcasting and the Internet in Britain, co-authored with James Curran and now in its eighth edition, won the International Communication Association's Fellows Book Award for the book that has most influenced the discipline. Since 2007, she served as the director of the Orwell Foundation, the location of Britain's premier prizes for political writing, setting standards and holding journalism to account, as well as for celebrating good journalism and writing. She's a regular contributor to policy debates, especially those concerning public service content and freedom of speech. And we're delighted to have her join us this evening so that we can benefit from her insights. David Kay is Clinical Professor of Law at the University of California, Irvine, the Director of the UCI Law Clinic, and was the UN Special Rapporteur on the Promotion and Protection of the Right to Freedom of Opinion and Expression from 2014 to 2020. While he, having that role, he worked with his students on a wide range of projects relating to freedom of expression across the globe, including fact-finding missions in a range of countries and reporting on issues such as digital security, AI and human rights, content moderation and access to information during the global pandemic. He was also required to engage with governments on problematic legislation in his role, including in relation to hate speech, cybercrime and violations of human rights law. So as you can tell, he's more than qualified to discuss the gnarly problem of media freedom with us. And we're delighted to have him join us tonight from the US. Finally, Alan Rusbridger is an iconic name in British journalism. Editor of The Guardian for 20 years, from 1995 until 2015, he lived and led through the transformational era where print media had to work out how to survive in the digital age. Under his leadership, The Guardian survived and indeed thrived, managing to avoid a subscription paywall, unlike many of its rivals, and breaking a range of major news stories that went global, including the WikiLeaks diplomatic cables revelations, the phone hacking story that saw news international journalists jailed, disclosures about illegal torture and rendition, 
and in 2013, the Edward Snowden disclosures about mass surveillance. He's currently um, the chair of the Reuters Institute for the Study of Journalism at Oxford University. He serves on the New York-based Committee to Protect Journalists, and as of today, he is editor for Prospect magazine. He continues to be a prolific writer, and his latest book, News and How to Use It, published in 2020, is focused on information chaos and what journalism needs to do to win back trust. And we're delighted to have Alan with us as the third member of our panel. I'm going to hand over very shortly to Damien to discuss his book, but since I've introduced everybody else, I'd better introduce him as well. Damien is a distinguished policy fellow here in the Department of Media and Communications and is an expert in media and communications regulation and policy, active in policymaking as well as academic research. He's frequently called to give evidence to parliamentary committees and provide formal and informal policy advice to government. From 2014 to 2015, he served on the UK government expert panel advising on the value of, of the electromagnetic spectrum. He was called to give evidence to the Leveson inquiry in 2012. And from 2009 to 2010, he served on the communications consumer panel, a non-executive role at the communications regulator, Ofcom. Um, more recently, he's been advising the Council of Europe on media governance, including making recommendations on media ownership and pluralism and the prominence of public interest content. Damon is the author of many articles on media and communications regulation and policy and the author or editor of several books. The most recent one before this being the most um, uh, the excellent edited collection, Digital Dominance, The Power of Google, Amazon, Facebook and Apple from 2018 in Oxford, with Oxford University Press, which he co-edited with Martin Moore. So just before I hand over to Damien, please remember that if you'd like to ask questions, do so via the Q&A function. We will collate them throughout the discussion and then we'll present them to, to the participants once the Q&A starts. You can pose a question at any time. You don't have to wait until the end of the presentations or the panel discussion to do so. And so I'm sure everyone's keen to get to the substance of the evening. So without further ado, I will hand over to you, Damien. Thank you very much, Lee. Thank you all for attending. Thanks to my co-panelists for taking the time um, and thanks to, to the organizers for getting this uh, event together. So the question of my book is whether media freedom should be recognized in law and policy independently of freedom of expression or freedom of speech. That's the question. Underlying contemporary policy dilemmas is an interesting constitutional question, if you like. Should media be autonomous? How? What are the implications of a media autonomy principle for media law, for subsidies of the media, for tax, for example, and other aspects of governance? If there are benefits, privileges and protections for the media, should these include the new media, social media, intermediaries on the internet? And do new European approaches to the regulation of social media, for example, the proposed EU Digital Services Act or the online safety bill in the UK, do these new approaches to governance, do they effectively annex social media to the state, compromising this principle of media autonomy? And should we worry about this. These are obviously big questions. But there are other reasons why 
looking at media freedom right now is in my view quite important. The idea of media freedom is gaining significance in international law. So for example, the EU's Charter of Fundamental Rights at Article 11 says freedom and pluralism of the media should be respected. And the EC only last week in the State of the Union speech, the European Commission announced that there would be an EU-wide Media Freedom Act. So a piece of legislation enshrining an idea of media freedom. The Council of Europe and the Commission continually monitor media freedom. And even in the UK, the Foreign and Commonwealth Office supports a media freedom panel. So I argue in this book that all of these exercises would be easier and more widely supported if they were based on a coherent notion of what media freedom in fact is. But in fact, when you examine these documents and these debates, you find that there's a huge amount of disagreement. The public, in my view, as well as policymakers, have to understand what counts as media, who they have to be free from, and to do what if media governance based on media freedom is going to enjoy widespread legitimacy. So this is a, a key idea of the, of the book, that we need a simple and widely understood coherent theory uh, of media freedom if these uh, forms of governance based on media freedom uh, are to enjoy widespread trust in the public, just as there was historically a widely understood notion that the press were free and that our trust in the press um, uh, abound, is bound up with that freedom. So uh, in the future, we need a widely understood notion of media freedom. So an example of this kind of dissent and dispute is in relation to taxation. So for example, some might argue that discriminatory taxation, so tax breaks to support the media, or subsidies based on them, is inherently, so by definition, in conflict with media freedom. Others argue that it can be done as long as appropriate safeguards are in place to protect media independence. And these different positions uh, separate, for example, the US approach, which is uh, very strict on tax taxation, uh, which is discriminatory, from European approaches, which are much more open to tax and subsidies. My argument in the book, just to sum it up, is that media freedom should be recognized in international law and policy independently of freedom of expression, but it must be more coherent and it must be more permissive of these kinds of positive supports for the media with improved procedural constraints, so much more uh, checks and balances and support for uh, independence of media and independence of policymaking processes. On what basis do I argue this? In the book, there are various different kinds of argument. I uh, go back over the history of press freedom and broadcasting freedom and show, if you like, the contingency of existing arrangements. So the development of policy and law, 
over time in relation to different technological paradigms. And I show, I excavate, if you like, where some of the existing ideas and prejudices and differences among different approaches to media freedom, where they come from. And I show that media freedom is never absolute. Uh, media in democracies are always in a, in a kind of settlement uh, with the state. And I also engage with what I see as the, the dominant reasoning in, in law and jurisprudence on uh, media freedom, which are slippery slope based arguments that a lot of the uh, uh, that basically argue that support for the media doesn't uh, uh, genuinely, uh, sorry, uh, these slippery slope arguments generally are based on the idea that some support for the media will eventually lead to capture. I argue that support doesn't always mean capture and that accountability uh, of media can also mean strength and support and legitimacy. Because media freedom can't be absolute, the media have to be subject to duties, obligations and responsibilities and receive support. But the key uh, argument here is that those forms of accountability and responsibility and those positive forms of support for the media must be subject to uh, procedural uh, oversight and constraints uh, in order to protect media independence. So these are not uh, hugely new arguments, uh, but I'm showing how that they um, relate to this central concept of media freedom and trying to, uh, if you like, um, push back against what I see as a uh, an argument which is often supported by the media industry that um, media um, uh, freedom should be uh, in support of the uh, always the the, the um, narrowly defined uh, interests of those media of the, those media companies. So this relates to a long-standing debate in the United States about institutional rights or the press clause debate. In the US, um, uh, there's a, there, there is a, a long discussion, I'm sure um, uh, David can, can tell us more about it, about whether there should be under the First Amendment uh, a, a notion of uh, the press having specific institutional rights. Um, in the US, uh, this notion is generally, generally rejected by the Supreme Court, whereas in, the, in Europe, there is much more uh, support for these special institutional rights. So one of the arguments that I develop in the book is that uh, when you look at the development of these governance regimes globally, uh, we need to have, in the context of platform governance, uh, more convergence, if you like, and, and learning across these different uh, theories of, of media freedom. So in order to move on from these divisions between, if you like, a more negative rights approach where uh, Congress shall make no law uh, to abridge freedom of the press in the US uh, and a more uh, positive approach in, uh, the, in Europe and also in wider international human rights approaches, I argue that we need to, in order to move on from those divisions, we need to investigate where these divisions come from? Why is it that we have these differences of assumption about what media freedom in fact is? 
And a lot of the book is dedicated to looking at the twists and turns in the development of media freedom over the very long term. So I identify in uh, the revolutionary context in the US, a prejudice against taxation, for example. And I can see in the post-war development of international human rights, um, reasons why you have a more positive approach for supporting the watchdog role of the media. So these are deep constitutional theories, if you like, of how the media should be regulated, embedded in those developments of of, of different approaches to jurisprudence uh, around the world. So I'm indebted to a lot of scholars. Um, I could mention Gene Seaton um, uh, uh, among them. Uh, Historians and uh, and analysts of comparative law who've already looked at this kind of material and understood these underlying differences. I should enter a couple of disclaimers about the book. First of all, it focuses on the US and the UK principally, simply because these are areas uh, that I know more about. Uh, there's no real claim to universality here. I think there are other traditions and there are other um, uh, stories and theories of media freedom. Uh, but this is a start. This is an attempt to understand what the, the, these two um, traditions can tell us about this notion of media freedom. I should also apologize um, to those who may be expecting to hear tales of heroic journalists. Um, uh, Alan, of course, is one of those heroic journalists. Um, so apologies to Alan. Um, but my argument fundamentally is that uh, whether you're talking about um, Jamal Khashoggi or, or Daphne Caruana Galicia, um, or if you're talking about what is happening currently in Hungary and Poland in terms of compromises of media freedom, we need to understand those stories in terms of the structural context. So the, there are um, descriptions in the book of how the press and broadcasting, in a sense, fight for their own freedom. And in order to do that, they develop a government settlement which supports their sustainability through, for example, tax support, uh, access to distribution, spectrum, subsidies, and so forth. So if we're witnessing a a media freedom emergency, and I would agree that there are very significant problems, we need to see that in terms of structural context and in terms of the diminished capacity to promote and to exercise liberty. It depends on the media having the revenue, not just legal protection. So um, that's why I argue that the negative interpretation of media freedom uh, and the press clause in the US is really a permanent bias against the kind of structural institutional support for media governance that is now a necessity. It's not just desirable for media survival, um, it's a necessity. And the negative rights approach is based on slippery slope reasoning that is really needs to be a reassessed in a new environment. So just before I close, I'm going to um, mention the implications of this kind of approach for some current policy um, debates. And I'll mention sort of three, around three of them. Um, 
But the assumption here is that positive measures, which have traditionally been viewed with suspicion, that is supports for the media, subsidies for the media and so forth, um, the basic argument is that, yes, they could compromise media freedom, but it is not true that they must. So the proposed EU Media Freedom Act needs not only to protect journalists from governments, it needs to protect them from platform power. It needs to take positive steps to ensure that they have resources and distribution. They need to play their democratic role. And this piece of legislation needs to treat the problem in a holistic, structural way and make bold moves to structure the market through competition. Positive interventions to support the media do come with dangers. And we need to strengthen accountability to civil society, not to governments and private companies. So bodies like the Facebook Oversight Panel, which um, uh, the Oversight Panel um, Alan is a member of, um, these bodies will ultimately need to find their place alongside civil society-led accountability um, and bodies that uh, adjudicate new forms of privilege for the media, such as, for example, prominence public interest-based prominence. The online safety bill in the United Kingdom, which is going to be a mentally uh, controversial piece of legislation, proposes a new framework of co-regulation, which I argue could congeal into an opaque blob of public-private censorship. This needs to be amended in a very particular direction to protect Ofcom's independence, and to establish genuine civil society accountability. So Ofcom could, for example, have permanent citizens' representation, citizens' assemblies, citizens' juries, to provide the legitimacy that that co-regulatory apparatus needs. So what this approach media freedom prompts is a focus on the procedural dimension, independence and civil society. So I'm lucky enough to have served on a number, as Lee mentioned, of Council of Europe working groups. And this autumn, one of those is going to publish some new principles of media governance, which have been written uh, by this expert group, which includes people like Manuel Pupis um, and Mark Cole, and is chaired by Miria Donder from Ofcom. So um, these principles of media governance will, in many ways, um, uh, demonstrate some practical ways of generating this procedural dimension of media freedom, which focuses on media independence, transparency, involvement of civil society and governance, rather than saying positive measures uh, in principle will lead to compromises of freedom of expression, uh, journalism independence and capture of the media. So to sum up, I argue that there is and should be a right to media freedom underpinning media and policy in democracies. It should be a positive approach, a social contract of privileges and connected duties, but that accountability must be separated from the state. Without it, in a world in which, to quote Sonia Livingston, everything is mediated and almost everyone is potentially media, the alternative to this positive approach may be a weakened public sphere and declining democracy. Thank you for your attention.
Thank you very much, Damien. Um, so let's go straight to our panellists. I'd like to invite Jean to uh, respond to Damien's ideas first. Uh, thank you very, very much indeed for inviting me tonight. Um, I read Damien's book uh, in sort of proof, I think, I think before it was even proofed, actually, um, with a real, a real sense of gathering excitement because I thought that he had um, opened up a different bit of the debate um, and he was, which is, 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 which is a really important part because I think at the moment people go around chasing their tails about whether they're talking about a thing called journalism, which I want to come back to, or a thing called the media, or and, and how on earth in this contemporary world we think clearly about very simple principles which are actually rather old, but it's it finding the new space for the application of quite important simple principles and I think that his book does absolutely put his finger on how we might begin to do that. I then wanted to, so I think it's a fantastically important book and um, I think that he's done it with his usual clarity and I just wanted to raise one or two sort of issues. The first one is you know if you've written if you've thought most of your life pathetically about public service broadcasting, it's you've always seen the state and you've always been in battles about the, the degree of the state as an enabler or a, or a hinderer. And I came to a view, particularly actually over Northern Ireland, really, which was that, that it, it was both. And if you didn't want the state there, you'd, you'd be in an even worse position. So the BBC is a, and public service broadcasting historically we may be at a cusp point, have had a very complex relationship to the state um, in which they've both kept the state at, at arms in some points and have yet have depended on it and conceded. And I think that the development of that as an institution, it, 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 that's what we need. We need kind of really strong institutional developments because institutions um, have the capacity to survive individuals um, uh, and to hand down, they've got very bad, I can tell you, the BBC doesn't know its history at all, doesn't understand anything, but things can be handed down. So that's a positive. I think there's a negative round that, round um, the book, if I may say so, which is that the world is it has got even messier since you wrote it. And as it were, requiring, for instance, Hungary to sign up to some EU policy on media freedom, which it may or may not do, wouldn't make any difference to the conditions, the extremely straightened conditions of journalism, media institutions and individuals in Hungary. And so I think there's a really interesting issue about what I think of as cross-border media freedoms, which is really urgent. It, 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 this is partly informed by having worked on and off for the last six or seven years in South Asia and seen media freedom dramatically decline in India, but and 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 yet actually dramatically increase paradoxically in Afghanistan. Um, and th these are these are really puzzling. So how do those stories emerge? Well, it has to be through the emergence of new kinds of cross-border journalism and cross-border stories. So there has to be somewhere safe. For stories to come from, even if they're about you. And I think that's a very interesting area that you don't look into. Um, 
there are sort of, and the other thing is that um, the other way in which the world has got messier, or perhaps I, uh, and more difficult to manage, is that um, the procedural regulatory uh, uh, decencies, which in a way you're calling for, you're calling for the emergence of a new set of procedural regulatory accountability and decencies. And I, those, that, that's very admirable. But um, states don't look as if they've been rewarding those lately. States look as if they are, have been relatively concerned to intervene in all procedural decencies. So that's, that's the second problem. And I think the third absolutely brilliant thing about the book, which is not a problem, is that um, you identify a place... I mean. One is so bored with being caught in the crossfire of weaponized liberal freedom. Um, you know, I am free. Let me tell you, I'm free to say anything I want to you, which is weaponized and made more toxic. Between that and a, and a, a discussion that tries to say um, what we're trying to do is develop a uh, an imperfect thing, which is a public discussion, which will never have perfect boundaries. And but it would be better if you if you didn't malign the holders of sincerely held views routinely, but perhaps listen to sincerely held and well evidenced views. And that seems to me the great grey territory that we're grappling with. In everything, and I think I think that by identifying, you know, getting rid of media media freedom as an absolute, which I've I've certainly never seen it as, and it never has been. I mean, it isn't in America. There are things you can't do. Um, there are things you can't say. But particularly here, I think what we have had is a we have had we must see as we go forward is a set of matching institutions. That have have as it were stopped stepped into that space. So I think the the world's messier and nastier than it was when you wrote this book. And I think that thinking clearly about um, you know our international role is quite important. I think that and I'd rather disagree with you. There are different traditions, um, but I think this is a universalistic. I'm, I'm, I'm very old-fashioned that way. I think these are a set of universalistic values. And, um, it, you know, you can think, you can list off any contemporary authoritarian country where these arguments would not hold. So, I mean, you know, but I think they're universalistic values. I don't think there is a, I don't think, I'm not convinced that there is a convincing argument that um, having um, mistakes pointed out to you is not a good thing, which is, after all, what we're talking about, um, is not a good thing in, in the general governance of things. It's very simple. Journalism is about pointing out mistakes and coming to terms with them and arguing about them. And um, societies which don't have that are in a, prob in a problem place. So I'll finish. And, but it's a great book. <laughs> Thanks very much, Jean. And some of the questions in the Q&A are picking up some of the points that you just made as well, so I'm sure we'll come back to them. Um, David, um, can I invite you to speak? Great, Lee. Thank you so much uh, for hosting this, this discussion. And, um, and it's really great, but also daunting to follow 
uh, Jean and and Damien, uh, given the uh, the the provocations um, both in the book and in Jean's comments, um, and also just in in terms of the background that they bring to these issues. I mean, the first thing I want to do is thank Damien for writing this book. Um, the book is um, is a kind of landmark contribution in in the sense that we're at a moment of I think broad confusion over what media freedom is and who is a journalist and what policy should look like uh, at a time when you know everybody claims to be a journalist and um, and I think that that's um, you know in terms of this this sort of first question and I just want to make maybe three or four points here, which is you know what does media freedom mean? if in an age of social media, everyone claims to be a journalist, how, how, do we, how do we think through both the definitional issues that Damien addresses both in the book and elsewhere? Um, how do we think through the gatekeeper problems that emerge when we highlight media freedom and yet we expect or perhaps we put governments into the position, giving them the power to make the call as to who gets certain privileges and who doesn't. These are fundamental problems of, uh, of media, I think in the pre-digital age, but especially in an age where there is so much information and not just so much information, but so much creation of new information. And so I think for that reason alone, in terms of answering that kind of question and presenting the, the dilemmas as clear as Damien has, this is an important book that, um, that I think really everybody who's in this space and who's thinking about the media and is thinking about media policy should be reading. So I wanna make two points about, um, about human rights and also maybe to reflect a little because I am the participant from the United States, um, which, I think there's a certain point in the book where Damien um, reflects on the West Coast libertarianism. Um, I'm in Los Angeles, so you know I'm sort of marinating in that all the time, of course. Um, but anyway, I didn't take it as a um, as a criticism personally. Um, but 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 I think it's worth highlighting in part because the book involves such a um, kind of evaluation and a theorizing of media freedom, both with a reflection on US and UK law, but also on international human rights law, to highlight the, a real important distinction, really at just the definitional level between freedom of speech in the United States in the constitutional sense and freedom of expression in international human rights law. And I think a lot actually flows from this in, in this work. So obviously in the United States, uh, the, the First Amendment protection is explicitly that Congress shall make no law abridging freedom of speech or of the press. I think that's a very interesting framing. Of course, it's a framing that's you know, over you know, 240 years old practically at this point, but that framing is very interesting because it's a direction to the government that the government cannot interfere. But it's also a suggestion that freedom of, of speech is kind of one directional. Um, I mean, not making reference to the boy band, but you know, is, is a direction in terms of 
who is imparting information. And I think that has had a kind of distorting effect. And it goes back to, to I think, the weaponizing that Jean was reflecting on a moment ago, which is that I'm a speaker, I could say whatever I want, it's about me, me, me. And there's something different in international human rights law, right? So Article 19 of both the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights provides a different framing. It is not directed towards, at least explicitly, government. Instead, it's directed towards the individual. It says that everyone enjoys the freedom of expression, and it defines freedom of expression as the right to seek, receive, and impart information and ideas of all kinds. And I think that framing is really important uh, for, for Damien, for your, your um, articulation of negative and positive rights. And, and why is that? It's because the definition of freedom of expression is that I, if it's, if it's just me, if I'm one of those everyone, I have the right to seek and receive information and it's information and ideas of all kinds. So I should have access to a broad pluralistic network of information, but it's also that I have the right to impart information. This kind of multi-directional approach is inherent in human rights. And it's not clear that that's inherent to the to US law, even though US law has developed a something analogous to a kind of right of the audience to information. But but it's very different. And I think that kind of that groundwork is really important and I think supports the argument for international human rights law being a, a kind of fundamental way of thinking about media freedom in a digital age. Um, now that leads to a second point that I wanna make. And I actually wanted to quote directly from Damien's book. So I, I have the book right here. So if I, I feel like I should point it to you like where you, know, you should do the reading Damien, but, but maybe if I could just, I wanna quote a couple of lines from the book because I think this is very interesting and I think it requires us to think hard about what we expect of regulators. So um, it's at the bottom of page 129, where Damien says, the conflation of freedom of the media or of the press with freedom of speech or expression is flawed, which I agree with. And that's my um, editor's narrator's note. The press or other media as gatekeepers of information can and do act collectively and individually as a barrier to truth discovery or to individual expression, this leads to questions about whether media should be free to lie or whether their freedom includes the freedom to suppress, distort, or mislead. I think it is very provocative. And then Damien, you go on, and I'm quoting you back your words, you know how you go on. He concludes this paragraph by saying, the weakness and unfairness of media and the potential for abuse of their power are reasons that media freedom in international human rights law is not absolute, but carries, quote, duties and responsibilities, end quote, and has media pluralism as a corollary. I think this is all exactly right. But, but, it's, but it's also, there's a caution inherent in this, and maybe this is something for us to reflect upon. I've always thought that the, the duties and responsibilities part of Article 19, Paragraph 3, of the ICCPR of the covenant is almost um, surplusage. It's extra words. It's it's kind of a it's a chapeau that um, that means something, but it's really introductory to, to something else, which is that it's up to governments to demonstrate 
that any particular restriction on freedom of expression must meet you know, the famous three-part test right, of legality, necessity and proportionality and legitimacy of restriction. And I, I think that focusing, and, and I, I ultimately I agree, Damien, with your, um, with your uh, prescriptions, but I think that focusing on responsibilities in the context of, uh, of international human rights law has been too often abused by governments as a kind of framing to restrict media freedom rather than to incentivize uh, ethical uh, journalism. And if we wanna call it responsible journalism, journalism that is maybe that serves the watchdog function that you write about so well in the book and that comes from European human rights law. So I, I think that from my perspective, focusing on what governments are limited by in human rights law is just as important as thinking about uh, the, the ethics and the responsibilities of the media. And I think that comes through in the book, but it's something that um, certainly as we head towards policy, and I'll just conclude on this, is, is particularly important, which is that, and, and again, this is a shout out to the book, right? So platform power is obviously a big part of media freedom uh, at the moment. And the book articulates that very well. But, but I really want to emphasize this point that Damien makes throughout the book, which is that we need to take a holistic approach. So if we think about media freedom only in the context of the kind of regulation that governments might impose on the platforms without thinking about the broader positive steps that we expect governments to take in this space, we will miss a big part of this and we will end up limiting uh, media freedom to a large extent. And I think that this is a particular focus, particularly as we move into the policy spaces that, that Damien is talking about in part uh, in the book. So I'm going to close there. And again, Lee, thank you very much for inviting me to participate here. Thank you very much, David. Um, so let's go to our final panelist, Alan Rosbridger. Alan. Well, I'd like to begin by echoing um, David and Jean and uh, in their praise for this book, which I think is timely and necessary, and, and also in their judgment that, that things are perhaps more of a mess than when Damien wrote it. This question of, of who should regulate the media is particularly fragmented and, and um, difficult in, in the UK. I think that the, uh, you have a press that basically wants to be self-regulated. When it thinks about television, it's uh, not really sure who should regulate it. It's not very keen on Ofcom. It doesn't protest much when the government becomes rather interventionist um, uh, and seems to me is, is happy to accept an interference that they personally would never accept. You've got a government that uh, is increasingly interventionist towards television um, uh, and uh, has great enthusiasm, I think, for uh, inserting its own people to run the BBC and Ofcom in, in ways that seem to me antipathetical to a, a free press. And then when it comes to the internet, um, everybody wants to have much more regulation than, than exists at the moment, um, uh, up to and including a level playing field with the uh, other forms of media, uh, i.e. that uh, social media companies should take e equal responsibility for everything in the way that, that other publishers do, uh, in a way that it's not clear is actually consistent with the idea of social media in the first place. So it's, it's a bit of a mess. 
uh, and it seems to me a particularly um, British-centred uh, view uh, and uh, ignores questions uh, or aspects or the perspectives of, of other countries where social media really is all they have as a, as a form of a form of free media, uh, uh, messy and um, complicated as it is. Uh, and, and by and large, the debate has assumed that social media is, is largely a, a bad thing. Um, and it assumes that social media is, is, is largely a bad thing um, uh, uh, and is prepared to lose those freedoms uh, uh, that, are, that are there in, in, the, in the chaos that we have in social media at the moment. Uh, lo lost in this argument are aspects of privacy and um, debates about um, the developing norms of um, free expression that have, that have been developed over two or three hundred years in, in the UK. It, it passed without comment when the government decided that actually the relationship between journalist and source would no longer be sacrosanct or between MP and constituent, lawyer and client, doctor and patient. Uh, priest and, and communicant, all, all these conventions that existed for a long time um, uh, have been uh, gently swept aside. Uh, and um, there is an assumption, this comes into the whole debate around encryption, that, that um, the behavior of a few bad players uh, should entitle the state to, uh, to have the ability to enter into this new realm. Uh, you, you've now got proposals from the government which would criminalise uh, a, a lot of reporting, I would say, would, would penalise journalists and their sources, would en end up seeing editors in jail, uh, fail to protect whistle whistleblowers, uh, uh, remove the notion of a public interest defence, uh, uh, and really goes back to a position of saying that the national interest is what the government says it is. Uh, there's been a bit of pushback against that, but but not very much. And uh, all all this was very crucial to me when I was ed editing the Snowden revelations. Um, uh, and of course, the the fundamental case there is that is the Pentagon Papers, Daniel Ellsberg, where you had a state that said this is not in the interest to publish, uh, attempted to uh, injunct the New York Times and the Washington Post, would have gladly jailed uh, Daniel Ellsberg if they could. Uh, and of course, 50 years later, Daniel Ellsberg is to most minds the hero and that Nixon was the crook. Uh, and this idea that, that the state should be able to be the definer of the national interest uh, and should have control over the media seems to have been greatly weakened in some respects, although, as I say, in other respects, uh, it is the journalists who are urging the state to be more interventionist. Uh, uh, and uh, that comes to the overpowering conclusion in my mind that the state, that the, 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 if the press, the, the media is to mean anything, it has to be totally independent of any kind of state regulation, uh, of content anyway. Um, I, should, I should mention the work that we're doing on the, the Facebook Oversight Board in, in this difficult and messy and chaotic uh, environment in, in which we are trying to start to by using human rights norms and laws uh, to defend freedom of, of expression uh, and making very fine judgments often in cases where you're uh, 
looking at the particular context of uh, pieces of content uh, and trying to work out where the line should lie between causing offence, causing harm, uh, issues like nudity, blasphemy, but trying to do it in in uh, a way that applies a human a universal human rights framework, uh, as opposed to uh, uh, encouraging individual states uh, to start to make uh, individual decisions about uh, particular uh, territories. Um, finally, I, I think. The other thing that depresses me, apart from the incoherence of uh, some of this debate, is the, is the, the impatience of it, that, that um, particularly in regard to social media, um, that people want this all settled by next week. Uh, and uh, again, anybody with the kind of sweep of history that I think informs Damien's writing uh, knows this is unlikely to. It's not going to be sorted by next week. It's it's going to unless unless we are going to ride into this with hobnailed boots. Um, it's going to take a, a long time, possibly decades, uh, to sort out because the danger of uh, of crushing uh, the um, the incipient good uh, that social media uh, can have. Uh, uh, in an attempt to, to stamp out the undoubted harms that it also has is, is such a, a delicate thing that it's going to require extreme subtlety and care to get it right. Uh, and um, sometimes you just long for a more informed debate about that and that seems to me why it's so uh, essential that people like Damien are, are writing these books uh, that um, uh, start by uh, a long, cool, historically informed and internationally informed uh, consideration of this subject. Thanks very much, Alan. Um, Damien, would you like to respond to the panellists before we go to the Q&A? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to do them justice, I'm afraid. Um, uh, in part because I also I know we're joined by by lots of um, uh, a, a, a large audience, including our new students. Welcome! I haven't spoken to you today. If you just arrived at the LSE, um, you're very welcome. I look forward to speaking with you. Um, but I do want to pick up some of the kind of interlinked uh, themes in um, in the responses. Um, one of them being, you know, we're in more of a mess. Uh, than you think, Damien. Um, and that is sobering. And there seem to be um, some, some concerns um, uh, which, are, which seem to be getting worse rapidly. And, and um, people haven't mentioned, uh, obviously, the safety of journalists' concerns directly, uh, but also, uh, and I think this is what the European Union is, is responding to urgently by, by announcing a Media Freedom Act, uh, a sense that some of that independence or autonomy of media institutions, public broadcasters in European Union member states uh, is being rolled back rather rapidly and successfully. So I want to be absolutely clear that I don't think a theory of me media freedom is, is uh, the silver bullet here. Um, but I do want to kind of bring us back to, to, to thinking about how this 10 year cycle is going to unfold. And I, I agree with Alan. Um, the, the new questions of governance of platform power and what we now call media, which are these new intermediaries uh, on the internet, 
Um, and the long-term settlement for the long-term future of, of media freedom as media transform into, into other things. Um, I'm trying to do various things with the book. One is I'm trying to pass out this, this simple theory so that at least academics, civil society, uh, some of the many campaign groups um, can develop, and I don't, it's not the final word, it's not, you know, it's, it's very early, but um, can at least begin to grapple with concepts to have this conversation. I mean, that, 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 that's the hope. Um, and I don't think, um, I mean, to go back to the, 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 the point Jean made, um, I think it's important, even if it turns out that there are universally held values and assumptions about how democracies work and that the, the uh, approach to freedom. I don't think we should underestimate, and that's something I tried to demonstrate in the book, that there is actually a, a lot of disagreement and uh, potential for, uh, just at the analytical level, a lot of confusion about um, uh, what, you know, the fundamental question which you hear again and again, what are the media? Um, and that's the very first question here. You know, if you have uh, both positive privileges um, in order to uh, fulfill the role of a democratic media um, institution, and that might be protection from defamation law, it might be access to distribution privileges or tax breaks or forms of subsidy. Um, if you have those privileges, you've got to decide how they, um, uh, uh, who gets them and in what form. And that always involves a potential uh, for control. And what I guess I'm doing is saying, well, what we need to do is not say don't give privileges because at this juncture, we need those positive uh, interventions in order to make the media work. Um, but we need to focus on how to award those in independent ways. So in the online harms bill, we need to really zero in on independence of Ofcom, independence of the codes. Is the Secretary of State too involved in all of the, the, the decision making around these forms of governance? Um, so it's not, you know, a, a silver bullet, this theory. I'm, I'm trying to give, give some, some handles on how to approach these, these questions. And I agree entirely it's going to take a very long time, but hopefully um, we, we can uh, have a start and hopefully continue the, the, the conversation. Uh, but I'd be, be very grateful to, to respond to some of the uh, questions in the chat. And I have to say, David, I didn't do, do justice to yours um, uh, or Jean or, or, or Alan, but I'm going to come back to them uh, uh, at the end if we have time. Okay. <clears throat> Thanks very much, um, Damien. Thank you to all the panellists. Uh, let's go straight into the questions then. Um, I want to take the first one from Irene Wang, who is um, an LSE alumni, and she asked, how do you foresee... Balancing media, media accountability with media freedom. How can we ensure when we're designing laws in liberal democracies to counter fake news that they're robust enough not to arbitrarily restrict media freedom nor to encourage companies to preemptively censor content? I'd like also my co-panelists to, to, yeah. to, 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 to come back. But I, I mean, if I just kick off, because that's the key question, isn't it? It's... Um, if you have a principle of autonomy and, and, and the value of freedom, but you also require accountability. And I think um, the central message of the book is that there are ways of doing this, and there's a very long history of developing institutions that are able to do that. 
uh, which are, for example, independent regulatory authorities awarding uh, spectrum um, uh, by independent bodies um, uh, and um, awarding all of those various privileges that go uh, with being media in ways which are not captured by the state. So I think in uh, international debate, people are getting wiser to how those games work in terms of controlling media freedom. And it is not uh, simply, um, for example, just safety of journalists or just um, uh, uh, application of defamation law in, in particularly restrictive ways. It's a holistic view of the, the combined um, force of all of these different uh, measures. And very often you see, and Alan has experience of this, I'm sure, as, a, as an, an editor, um, you'll see that where certain forms of pressure or restriction uh, uh, cease to work or people get wise to them. So, for example, controlling uh, spending of government advertising uh, budgets, um, others are used. And there's a kind of a cat and mouse game with, with, with control of the media. Uh, but what's important is this uh, the role of civil society oversight, in my view. Um, and we should stop um, focusing all of our energy on, on um, addressing the state and requiring the state to answer this question of accountability uh, through new laws and new designs. And we should focus also our energies on, on bottom-up civil society solutions um, to this. And you can see that in setting up bodies like Impress, which is a civil society-led uh, regulator in the, in the UK of newspapers. And you can see other forms of bottom-up governance as well. Thanks, Damien. Would anyone else on the panel like to come back on that question as well? Okay, so let's let's move to a theme that's coming through quite a few questions, which is this question of media freedom in um, uh, non-liberal democratic states and authoritarian states or other kinds of governance uh, models. So Andrea Eftimu, uh, who is an LSE alumni, asks, what, we, what can we do to make media more open as well as accurate when it comes to local, national and international social and economic justice movements? That's in the context of a state that where um, there is a collusion rather than separation between media and state. Amina Norman um, also asks, how do we define media freedom and safeguarding? How do we do, stop me? So how do we safeguard the legislation from being monopolised in contexts where the media is largely state-backed? Um, and Behalu um, Shifarao, who's LSE alum, um, also says, what do you say uh, about the various new ways authoritarian governments are coming up with to suppress freedom of expression? So that, there are lots of questions that circulate around how we translate this concept over to um, uh, 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 less liberal democratic context. Um, Damien, you might want to respond, but Jean, you did mention that in your comments, so you might want to come in first. Um, okay, well, okay, I'll just say one answer. I mean, historically, if you look around the argument around um, pornography, um, I, I was always very aware that um, an argument for regulating pornography in our society, which might have all sorts of positive values could be used in another society at that same argument, those same mechanisms actually to regulate other kinds of, 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 of speech. So I think, I think, and the other thing I'd say, so I think there is a real conundrum, which is why I raised the cross-border 
reporting actually is a really key thing. But there's another conundrum, which is that um, authoritarian states have a whole panoply of soft power ways of producing complicity. You know, and and complicity um, is the is the is the it, it, there's fear. My my Alan will know much better than me, but my experience of institutions is you ha- only have to have the tiniest amount of fear, the most minuscule amount of fear, and and it reaps huge quantities of complicity, and that is certainly true across. If you look at um, Eke Tackleman on Turkey, what eight years ago. You know, eight reasons why democracy is going. The, the, the alarm bells around these issues have come up. What I would say, so I think it's that's quite dismal. What I would say is that if we cleared our act up, if we cleared our thinking up, then we, we and I've got no answer to that, but we might, and we were defending the right things. Um, currently, the British Foreign Office. Is, dis- is defending freedom of speech. And I've just had quite long engagements with the freedom of speech task force who literally doesn't understand the difference between free- the kind of freedoms that Damien is talking about. They just think all you do is have this thing called freedom of speech and it'll all be lovely. They don't understand the institutional structures that need you need to support it. So what I would say is that if we could clarify what it was we th- were thinking about, we might be able to defend it all better generally. That's, But we're completely blindsided, I think, at the moment. I think we are blindsided by authoritarian governments' manipulation of something they call the media, which under Damien's restriction is probably only partly the media. I mean, you say, what are the media? Well, is, you know, we could go through individual media in Pakistan or individual media in India, do you know what I mean? And let alone China and say, is that a media that meets Damien's criteria? No, it clearly, it clearly probably wouldn't. So that's, that's a mess. But if we cleared things up, we might be better. Thanks, Jean. Um, Damien. I just want, can we hear from David on this? Because he has quite a lot of experience um, in authoritarian countries around the world. Yeah, so I, um, thank you, Damien. Um, uh, so this question, and in, in, in part as Jean was responding to it, I was thinking that we don't have to look very far to see this happening in real time, right? There's Hungary, of course, but I think one of the um, interesting and you know, you might say depressing places to look right now is Poland, where the wh- a friend of mine has referred to it as, you know, death by a thousand cuts. Yeah. And, and it's very much what Jean is describing. And also, Damien, what your book describes, which is, you know, the institutional features of a society, of a government that protect media freedom. And what you see happening in Poland right now is you know an approach to foreign media, foreign-owned media, or foreign-owned um, businesses more generally. You see approaches to taxation and differential taxation, depending on whether you're friendly to government or not. There are issues around access, so access to information, access to government figures in order to do the reporting you need to do. You see the, you know, a separate but also deeply related approach to social media that has a big impact on both domestic and 
international independent media in the country. And I think what we see there is something that we've seen in many other places. Perhaps it's a little bit more sophisticated than you see elsewhere because it happens. It's like, you know, they talk about, you know, putting a frog in boiling water. You know, all of a sudden uh, it's so hot that you're going to die. Well, that's what's happened in Poland. And I think that a theory of media freedom, as you've described it, Damien, can really be um, powerful in helping us understand what's happening in a place like like Poland. But at the same time, it raises questions that I don't think you set out to to address, which is, you know, what what is the role of the international community, the international um, community of journalists and and others who have or or you know the platforms in terms of providing support to media freedom in a place like Poland. And I think that's one of the fundamental, if we think about this as a kind of international policy questions that is triggered by your book, even if your book doesn't answer them. But I think that's that adds to the, the complexity here. I'm happy to come in, or I don't know, Alan, if you, if you have anything. I mean, the, the, the situation in Poland, it, you're right, is interesting, and it demonstrates the point you made, David, and it is something I'm trying to get across in the book, of the importance of a holistic approach. Um, because, in a sense, um, the international NGO community and campaigns have, have tended to focus on specific kind of practices. This is a bad defamation law. Um, you know, cr criminal libel is a bad thing. The, 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 these are the models of, 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 of instruments and legal standards which are bad inherently for democracy. And, but, but the actual exercise of media freedom, which, you know, the, the individual decisions which an editor is taking, uh, whether to pursue a story or not, whether to invest in an investigation or not, um, behind those is actually a much more complex picture than whether this or that law is going to be breached because in many cases, um, very wealthy uh, media um, will be prepared to run the risk as a cost of doing business. And that may be related to uh, ownership rules or the general competition framework. Um, and there may be a, a, a combination of many different governance choices which impact on the actual enjoyed uh, liberty or freedom of that editor. And what I think we're, we're learning in relation to Poland, where on one hand you have new media ownership laws being passed, which in some senses they're very similar to other European countries, you know, where you have bans on foreign ownership. But they're being passed for a reason, which is that uh, news channels, um, which are foreign owned, which are owned by the US, are, are seen as critical of the government and having uh, colonised the public broadcaster and turn it into a state broadcaster. These are the, the remaining dissenting voices. Um, so on that, you, you have that happening on one, uh, on one side, and you also have um, uh, the, the government buying up uh, through state-owned um, companies um, uh, various interests or, 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 or people close to the government uh, buying, buying them up. So um, I guess, you know, it, what I'm trying to do is... Uh, generate a bit more awareness of that kind of holistic wide range of things which contribute to to media freedom and think about how they're going to play out in the next generation of, of new media. If we do want, and I think we do want, 
an independent, self-regulating, autonomous public sphere of privileged media, um, we need to make sure it's not the state that's controlling who they are and what they can do. Um, and we need to think about how to generate uh, independent civil society discussions about, about those kinds of fundamental questions. That's kind of what I'm trying to get across. But I think I agree with you, David. And um, there are some very real examples right now in Europe. I, I, I would just add, um, and, and I hinted at this in, in, in my opening remarks, that um, the, the, the British perspective sometimes doesn't uh, take into account the, these, um, the playbook that so many repressive states are now taking it extremely effectively to, to snuff out um, uh, traditional forms of media. And the sense in which uh, the social media now is, is the only place where um, a relative freedom uh, exists. Now, the, the problem with, with social media is that, that it has sort of two heads to it. In one sense, it's tremendously dispersed. It's the most dispersed form of communication that has ever existed. Uh, and it's simultaneously very centralized through a, a, number, a small number of very powerful platforms. Uh, and so you've got that dichotomy, which uh, is, is a difficult one to, 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 um, to know how to deal with. But I think to, to build on what Damien was just saying, um, that, that if you don't want Mark Zuckerberg to be the, um, the arbiter of what four, 4 billion, or in his case, 2 point something billion um, people can say and, uh, and, and receive, uh, and you think it's a bad idea that governments should uh, actually dictate what kind of content uh, is allowable, then there, there has to be a, a, a third force. Um, uh, and um, I guess that in, in, a, in, a, in a small way is what the Facebook Oversight Board is, is, is trying to do. Um, but um, there, uh, you know, it, it's, it's open to anybody else to step into that space. Uh, and I think in the end, you're driven to the same, same sort of working system that, that we're using which is to use um, the international um, framework of, of human rights law uh, around speech uh, to uh, settle some of these issues. Thanks, Alan. Um, can I, I want to come, because the, the kind of, the, the conversation is circulating around this, this question really, um, but we, you mentioned um, civil society, all of you mentioned that in some form, and Horatio Mortimer asks, what characteristics does civil society need in order to fulfill the role you propose for it, does any society qualify or only ones with certain qualities? Um, I'm not sure who would like to take that one first. Well, I, I mean, I think it's addressed to me, um, given that I've made these points about civil society. Um, and it's a very good question because. Um, it's a bit of a last refuge for scoundrels just saying, leave it to civil society, isn't it? Because it raises questions of, of, of who decides um, what they are and, 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 and what you can do about the kind of self-appointed uh, representatives. Um, but I'm, I would push back to, to a little bit and link it to what Alan was saying. Um, one of the criticisms of the Facebook oversight panel is a very obvious one, which is ultimately this is something which has been designed by Facebook. Uh, members, obviously, they're all brilliant, like Alan, um, have been selected by Facebook. 
Um, and the cr criteria and the limitations on what the, 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 the Facebook um, oversight panel, um, whilst there is huge constitutional in independence of the board, ultimately um, could be stopped or changed by Facebook, just as they did with, um, you know, Google did with its AI oversight uh, board. And there have been a succession of these, these kind of uh, self-regulatory uh, institutions set up by large platforms. Um, but when I put the preference on, on the need for civil society, um, uh, and I'm aware that there are political cultures and traditions where this is much more established and it's much more um, uh, in line with the, with the political culture. Um, I'm, I'm saying something relatively simple, which is um, that if you look at back into the history of um, the way press and broadcasting has worked, you can see very often that uh, there are problems when the private power of platforms, etc., cetera, uh, gets into opaque links and reciprocities with uh, private interests, governments, parties, and so forth. Um, and when I talk about accountability to civil society, the actual, the sharp end of this, and I mentioned the Council of Europe governance principles, the sharp end of, end of this is uh, achieved by making things transparent and giving people access. So Alan will be aware of the um, long-standing dispute about access to Facebook data, for example. So civil society cannot do its oversight role. And I would argue not everybody can enter that space uh, as effectively as uh, can an internal board because that data is controlled. Now, if you look at the Digital Services Act, which is a, uh, a legal proposal from the European Union, um, it has provisions uh, which will oblige platforms to open up their data. And that's something which academics and researchers and campaigns have been asking, asking for for a very long time. And what this demonstrates in a way is that, yes, it's holistic and there are different actors here, but it, require, it will require legal instruments to oblige platforms to behave in certain ways, open up their data. Civil society has to then use that data and it has to be done um, uh, effectively in ways which um, uh, wider civil society can have access to really understanding how this platform world that we're all involved in is shaping our democratic debate and shaping each of us. So this is a big long-term governance question, and I agree with you, Alan, it's going to take a very long time, um, but it's not a problem that Facebook can solve on its own. I completely agree, and and of course there are, there are lots of criticisms you you could have. Sorry, on. Alan. Sorry, could you lean a little bit closer to the microphone? I will see if I can. Uh, is is that any better? Let me try and. If I switch microphones, is that better? That's better. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, there are all kinds of criticisms uh, you could make of, of of the Facebook experiment and 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 Damien's made up. Um, but I, I don't think that should be an excuse to uh, give up on this kind of initiative. And by the way, it's it's hard to think of, of um, any other private media, large private media company that, that has set up a, a, a scrutiny body like this with the kind of obligations to abide by its rules. I mean, if you can think of a newspaper that has ever done that, uh, let me know. Um, uh, and the, the 
the, the dangers of the state attempting similar things uh, are exemplified in, in the in the UK at the moment. You, that you have Ofcom that regulates the BBC, uh, and in its last three reports has found that the BBC is impartial. Um, and you have a government that now wants to impose its own chair on Ofcom. Uh, failed at the first attempt. The board found that, that their, their candidate was, quotes, unappointable. So they're now to trying to reassemble a different panel to try and get him in again uh, at the same time as getting their own people onto the main BBC board. Uh, now, th that doesn't seem to me any better than what Facebook's trying to do. Um, and, and so um, uh, I, I applaud Damien's uh, instincts about trying to enshrine these in law, but it doesn't take much for a determined government to unpick these things. Thanks. David or Jean, would you like to add to, to that or David? And then Jean. I, oh, Jean, were you? Um, yeah, Zoom is always, you know, you want to be uh, um, uh, polite. So, you know, the thing that I would say here is I think we, we need to be, um, maybe it's unfortunate, but we need to be we need to be comfortable or at least recognize the fact that there's going to be differentiation across borders. I mean, there, there are going to be some places, particularly if we're talking about third party oversight or public private oversight or civil society oversight of some sort, which I strongly support. That's going to be um, that's going to be something that we can imagine developing across industry in some regions, whereas we it will be impossible for it to be created in others because of the fear of government capture for example. And so I think we just need to be comfortable with that, but that shouldn't be a, a reason not to, to move forward with these kinds of initiatives. And I, and I would say that as much as I, I mean, I'm very interested in the Facebook oversight board. I don't take the, the kind of the approach to it that is, you know, across the board negative. I mean, not at all. I think it's done some very interesting things, but I think one of the risks of something like that being the model is that it's probably something that only Facebook could do, right? I mean, it, it given the cost of the, the oversight board, it's not something that is easily replicated, maybe by Google, but, um, but really not by any other major entity, even I imagine, you know, a, a, a newspaper or, or possibly a broadcast entity could do something like this. But I think that that, that kind of tempers the, the model that it provides. It's a good model, I guess, for me, and this, I think, comes from Damien's work as well, is how do, we, how do we build that so that it becomes a cross-industry and globally uh, embraced kind of approach rather than it being something that is available only to the wealthiest company, I'm really one of the wealthiest companies in the world. Jean. Uh, you're on mute, Jean. I'm sorry. Um, I was going to say two things, one of which is that um, variety of voice, I mean, the, 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 the most interesting way of, of, of thinking about the, uh, uh, the opposition um, to freedom of speech simplicity is that what you're trying to do is pull the circus ring of voices that are brought into public debate wider, deliberately. And that requires deliberate action 
even even it, and what you're trying to do is balance against the capacity of some of those voices to be a mob and overwhelm other voices, which is the more contemporary version of that problem. So I think keeping civil societies is easy to say, but making, um, you know, m- pulling, getting wider voices into all of these arguments all of the time, but making sure that they're not dominated or going or taken over or just, again, utilised as mobs. And the second thing I think is that... Um, uh, I think Damien's book is also uh, a call to arms. And one of the problems we face, I think, is that because the problem looks very big and has these is weaponized in different ways, um, the public is very unaware of the urgency of the nature of the problem and actually very unexercised by it. Different competing groups say, you know, I must have my freedom, I'm being surveyed or something like that. But they're not actually interested in that difficult work in the centre. And I think there is a real problem about, which is to do with the trust in the trust in what it is that journalism is, about mobilising and energising and understanding that an ignorant public is really a very dangerous bit of democracy and and that's 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 why it matters it's because a public that doesn't know anything always hugely easily swayed by mis and disinformation there are huge tools to do that is really is is fundamentally dangerous to democracy so i think there's two problems and i don't i have no answer to either of them Thanks, Jean. We've got time for just a couple of additional questions. So I'm going to um, pick the last two. They're, they're primarily focused uh, on you, Damien, uh, rather than general. And the first is from Jonathan Hardy at the University of the Arts. And he asks, are you advancing communication rights? And if not, then does that suggest that those efforts are not currently influential in Western policy networks? One of the challenges I had um, uh, in uh, putting the book together was that my editor, John Thompson at Polity, uh, wanted me not to make it too long. Um, So I didn't write about everything. Um, And um, there is, of course, a long history of discussions of different ways of approaching communication rights, for example, in um, UNESCO in the 1970s. Um, and then again, in the early 2000s, there were, was a kind of a, a, a rekindling of an idea of communication rights uh, being uh, broader than just simply freedom of expression rights, and that there flowed from this also a global uh, politics uh, of decolonization. And I haven't dealt with that at all uh, in the in the book, um, uh, but I, w- I, you know, I, I am not. Um, I'm not sort of distancing myself from from those approaches. I'm I'm in a way I'm agreeing with Jean and saying that well, there are some very particular problems in liberal democracies, and I think um, you know in the last five years we, we've become more and more concerned about the health of, of of liberal democracy, and many people have been grappling with this question of whether the problems of li- liberal democracy are related to some of these media changes that we've been discussing. Now, I wouldn't take the view that it's the fault of the media um, or that 
a theory of media freedom or a new approach to media uh, governance is going to fix all of that. No, um, you know, the, the problems of uh, a political system and a party system uh, that is unable to uh, respond to the problems of economic security, inequality, exploitation, um, and uh, uh, injustice, which are in our society, the, the big structural problems are under, underneath those. But we have a system, and we've inherited a system of, of legitimization and deliberation of democracy, which has uh, dealt with and articulated social demands in a particular way. And it's that framework which is, I think, undermined, uh, creaking, um, and in that context... Uh, that problem of large swathes of the public uh, not knowing really why they should trust the media. Is the media the government? Is the media representing some other interest behind it? Um, is uh, the, there an idea that the press somehow serve truth or democracy? Um, those questions are arising again and again. And I think you see it, um, you know, you see large large groups of the electorate disengaging from democracy and, and not trusting democracy uh, anymore. Or, in, you know, Jürgen Habermas would say, you know, the, the, the system of legitimation is, is, is being undermined because of that. Um, and that's why um, I think we've got to work with the ideas that are in people's heads. Uh, press freedom is one of them. Uh, media freedom or broadcasting freedom is, is another one. There is inheritance of expectation about the media and an idea that they serve interests uh, of the wide, wider society. They're very fragile. Um, they need to be based on some kind of reality and they need to be deserved kind of trust. And um, I, I say in the book that, you know, there wasn't a golden age. Um, the media have discriminated against um, minorities. They have represented the powerful. They have represented the interests of big business. This is a given. But my hope is in the future, we can come up with some kind of settlement. And this is a problem for society. It's not a problem for private companies. It's not a problem uh, just for governments, which have a difficult conflict of interest in dealing with the media. Um, it's a problem for everybody. Um, so my hope is that, is that we can begin to understand these kinds of things and we can develop new concepts, simple ideas, which at least... Uh, a group of experts can agree are a coherent approach and that will be a means to go forward. That's my hope. Thanks very much, Jamie. And that actually also answers the second question that I was going to ask, which was um, what, 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 what do you envisage as the future for media freedom? What do you hope for? Um, which was from Jalisola Atiko. Um, uh, can I just, we have a couple of minutes. I just would like to invite the panellists to, uh, if they would like to, to make one final comment um, in relation to the discussion or additional point that they would like to make um, just to round off the evening. Um, Jean, could I ask you to, or invite you to say something first if you'd like to? I mean, I, I just, that this really matters. I mean, I think sorting our way through this is the, is the, Damien's just been um, rather reserved really about the relationship of, democratic institutions to how we understand ourselves but actually how we understand ourselves is the absolute building block of all democratic institutions so I think this is a foundational battle um, and so I think I think we ought to engage with it and particularly <coughs> the role the hugely increased role of propaganda from the capacity to do propaganda is 
unbelievably much larger. So I think I think this is the I think this is the key I think it's the key front line actually. I think it's the real front line. So it's a really good book on a front line topic. Thank you, Jean. Uh, David. Oh, just really quickly, and again, thanks for including me. You know, there, there's a sense that I have in which um, the the need to do this kind of hard thinking that Jean just referred to and that, that Damien's book is about, that I, I do wonder, and I don't mean to end on a kind of downer note, which is whether we, we missed our chance in a way, because part of what we're talking about is thinking about the role of media and the role of information in an environment when those who dominate that space are not necessarily operating in a good faith way. And that, in a sense, is what we're fighting against. And I think the hopeful part is that having a theory of media freedom, like Damien proposes in the book, is essential to doing that. And finding the places to do it where it's possible are essential. But globally, I think I'm, I'm, I'm less sanguine about the opportunities, at least at the moment. Thanks, David. Alan, good to see you. Um, I'd, I'd like to echo Jean's thought that the, this is a, a very urgent topic. Um, and uh, I suppose the one frustrating thing is about Damien's book, which is excellent, but it, uh, it's going to have a a, um, a solid readership, but maybe not a mass readership. Um, not not um, wishing to prejudge the the, the the sales it might have, but um, but how how do we uh, spread this debate and 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 raise alarm? Because the the sad fact is that a lot of the discussion about this kind of stuff appears in the hands of people who are themselves, of course, immensely conflicted. Um, uh, the, the, the the privately owned uh, what used to be the press media is, is of course as we've got huge in, uh, interest in not seeing a public media flourishing and not seeing the the uh, the internet flourishing uh, uh, and so um, the the real the real urgency of this uh, should be um, brought home and, and Damien's immensely positive. Um, uh, suggestions for uh, for for positive ways of of reshaping the debate, I, I think, are so important. But but you, you shouldn't rely on the old media to be the con conveyors of of this message. Thank you very much. A call to action, I think, uh, for for everyone, including uh, the audience. Um, that brings us to the end of the um, debate and the event. Uh, thank you very much, um, everyone, for attending. Um, and thank you all for um, joining us with the panel. It was a really great discussion.